Well, this past week, I started something that I have never done before in my life. Can I have your attention? Yes, here we go, yes. So I started something that I've never done before. And I am, and that thing is, I am officially a head coach of a sports team. I am the head coach. I'm the head coach of a sports team because I want to be just like my friend John here who is the head coach of a sports team. And he, he coached football for, for quite a few years, right? Yeah, for quite a few years with these tough, big guys. And I'm the head coach of these tough little girls. <laughs> I, I started coaching uh, this past Tuesday was our first practice. Uh, I'm coaching a little girl soccer team, uh, fourth and fifth graders. Uh, and we have two little girls uh, on our team that are from here. Uh, Lexi Baker and Emma Hathorne are both on the team and it's a joy to be able to coach them. Um, but Todd and Mark recently uh, took over uh, the youth league in Northwestern uh, for soccer, and uh, Mark brought to my attention, hey, you know, you could be a soccer coach. I played uh, soccer for 13 years in my life, so um, I knew a bit about uh, the game of soccer, and it stayed on my mind a bit, and possibly uh, coaching uh, a team. I wasn't anticipating a girls team, um, but so coaching, coaching a girls team is what I got. We have eight little girls on our team, and uh, I have a blast with them. I wasn't really sure what to expect in coaching a little girls team of fourth and fifth graders. As again, this is my first coaching experience ever in my life, um, but I have actually sincerely been enjoying it and hanging out with them and playing uh, the game of soccer with them. I told myself that I could at least commit a couple of months of my time and, and spending time coaching these girls and how to play soccer and be a good influence on them. And again, it turns out it's been a lot of fun. And on uh, Tuesdays, uh, we share half the field with, uh, with the boys team. And uh, the other coach and I were talking and we're going to agree to scrimmage on Tuesday. So I look forward for our little girls to take on the boys team. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to take down the boys team. I, th I think we have it in us to, to take them down. Um, but you may be curious as to why I would volunteer to be a coach for a fourth and fifth grade soccer team. Uh, as already I, I stayed pretty busy um, and sometimes I ask myself, why am I doing this? Uh, but there, there's a specific purpose in why I wanted to coach uh, the girls team. And that's because I want to put myself in a position to be able to influence the girls, connect with the girls, and be able to connect with the community. If I don't put myself out in that position, I would, it would be a lot harder for me to build connections with our community. But through coaching the little girls' soccer team, there, there's lots of other teams and coaches and people from the Northwestern community. I'm able to, to spread myself out more and put myself in a position where I can get to know the community and make connections and relationships with the rest of the community. So that's kind of been my intent and agreeing to coach the girls. Again, I'm enjoying it, but the, my intent wasn't for my self-satisfaction, although, again, I really am enjoying it. But it was, again, to put myself in a position where I can connect with the people in the community. And this morning, we've been going through a series, Heroes of Our Faith. And this morning, we're talking about a hero who puts herself in a position 
that God used for the better. She, she had a position in it. Yes, she. We're, we're talking about a female hero today. Uh, some of you uh, ladies may be excited about that. Um, but this hero, she, had, she put herself in a position, and she used that position for the better. Now, before we talk more about the hero that we're talking about today, uh, we're going to just give you a quick summary of where we're at, catch everybody back up to the past heroes that we've missed. The first week when we started this series, uh, we covered the hero of Daniel, and we learned that Daniel was not willing to compromise his standards. No matter what was thrown his way, he wasn't willing to eat the king's food or the king's drink, even though all of his peers were. And he wasn't willing to forfeit uh, praying to God, even though he was thrown into a lion's den. He was not willing to compromise his standards, no matter what was thrown his way, even the consequences of, of life and death. He was not willing to. And then the following, we talked about the hero of Paul. And Paul, he, he was a Jew in his former life, and then he became a Christian, and he was... This bad, he was an, really this awful guy towards the Christians. But through the conversion of Paul, we learned, through, we learned three lessons. We learned that sometimes you have to hit rock bottom. Paul had to hit rock bottom before he gave his life over to God's Son, Jesus Christ. With that said, we, we learned, number two, that there is always hope for someone. There is always hope for someone. Even Paul, who murdered Christians who led Christians to their death, he was a converted Christian. So there is always hope for someone, no matter, no matter what. As long as they are living, there is always hope. And number three, we learned that God can use anyone. God was willing to use a man who led numerous Christians to their death, persecuted these Christians harshly, but he was willing and wanting to use Paul. And so God can and wants to use anyone. Anyone and everyone. And then the following week, I wasn't here. I, I was uh, in South Carolina. And uh, John talked about some of the, our B-list heroes found in Colossians. And these heroes are kind of like the everyday people, kind of like you and I. But what made these heroes special is that they had a willingness to serve. That's what made them special. That's what made them heroes of our faith. They just had a willingness to serve. And so we too, we can be heroes of this faith. We can be heroes of our time if we have a willingness to serve God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And then finally, last week, we talked about David, and we, we took a look at the story of David and Goliath, and we saw the great faith that David had. But that faith would have been useless had David not put that faith into action. But rather, David had a faith that convicted him to act. And so we learned that we need to have a faith that convicts us to act. And so those were the, the first uh, four heroes that we talked about in this series. We'll be talking today about another hero, and then next week we'll conclude our series on the heroes of our faith. But the hero that we're talking about, a female hero, are there any guesses of who the hero is today? A female hero? I, well, I already told you, no. Ruth, close. I mean, I say close because that's just about the only other main female hero in the, in the scriptures. But the hero that we're talking about today is Esther. Esther is the hero that we are talking about today. And so Esther took place about 100 years after the Babylonian exile. 
And if you remember from the story of Daniel, the Babylonians invaded uh, the nation of Judah, the two southern tribes of Israel, and they invaded the nation of Judah. And when they invaded the nation of Judah and overtook the nation of Judah, they brought with them the, the Jews back to them. They, they captured the Jews and they brought them back to, to Babylon, or to the nation of Babylonia. And so this takes place about 100 years after that exile. And it takes place in a city called Susa, which belongs to the Persian Empire. Now, the Persian Empire, uh, followed by King Cyrus, overthrew the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. And so the story of, the story of Esther takes place around 500 B.C. It's, it's after the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem, and, and it's after King Cyrus and the Persians overthrew the Babylonian Empire. And when King Cyrus and the Persian Empire overthrew the Babylonian Empire, it provided the freedom for many of the Jews to return to their homeland in Israel. And, and many Jews took advantage of that. But some Jews, for whatever reason, chose to stay in, in that Mesopotamia area where, where the city of Susa is. And that's uh, the location of the story of Esther. And now the interesting thing about the story of Esther is, well, you can go ahead and, and find the book of Esther. It's right before Job. It's the last, uh, it's the last of the 12 books of history, or before the five books of poetry. And the book of Esther, it, it's a 10 chapter long book, so it's, it's, the chapters are really short though, but it's a decent sized book. And of all these 10 chapters, the word God never actually appears in the story of Esther. And many of us may find that curious, as this is known as the word of God. It's the word that's inspired from God. But the word God, the name God, or the title God, is never actually mentioned in the book of Esther. But we can see, as we'll go through the story, that God can be found in the story. We're, we're invited to look for God's activity Throughout the book, even though it doesn't explicitly state God did such and such, we can see throughout the story that God was lining certain things up for, for his people, the Israelites. And we aren't sure uh, who uh, wrote it, um, but, but it's a pretty good book. It's a pretty good book. You can manageably uh, read it in one sitting. Uh, as I did in the office the other day, it's 10 chapters, but again, the chapters are like 15 verses or whatever. So really it's about like five chapters, and you can easily read it in one sitting, which I would encourage you to read it uh, later this week, the book of Esther, as we'll just briefly be skimming through uh, the book and the story of Esther, as we don't have enough time to read it all. But in the book of Esther, there are four main characters. The first main character is, you guessed, the Esther. Esther is, he, she's the new queen of, of the city of Susa, and she's a Jew. She's the protagonist of the story. She's the hero of our faith that we're talking about this morning, Queen Esther. The second main character in the book of Esther is Mordecai. And Mordecai is the cousin of Esther, and so he too is a Jew. And Esther's parents died when she was a young age, and Mordecai must have, they, they were cousins, Mordecai. And uh, Esther, but Mordecai must have been a good bit older because he took care of Esther and viewed her as his own daughter. And then the third main character that we'll run into is King Ahasuerus, and he's the king of Persia. And the fourth main character is a man named Haman, and he is a king's official, which we'll talk about later. 
So as we'll be going through the book of Esther, we're only going to read a handful of verses. But it starts in chapter 1. And the king of Persia, King Ahasuerus, uh, he was big into himself. Kind of like King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. I built this nation by my hands, yada, yada, yada. The king of Persia was big into himself as well. He was very e egocentric. And so the king, he hosted a feast or a banquet for all of his officials and servants to attend. Now, when we think of a feast or a banquet, uh, at least when I do, I think of uh, maybe one evening and, you know, gather your friends and celebrate for whatever reason. Um, so he gathered uh, the people that worked for him to, to hold a feast or a banquet. But this was no ordinary feast. This was a seven-day feast. They had a feast that lasted seven days. It was all about the king. The king showing his riches and his glory to the people. And on the seventh day of the feast, after they had much great food and, and much to drink, on the seventh day of this feast, the king wanted to show off the beauty of his queen. Queen Vashti was the queen at that time. And so the king wanted his, his wife, the queen, to, to present her beauty before his people and show his glory and the majesty and the beauty of his wife. Now the catch is that Queen Vashti, she did not want to do that. She was not willing to, to show her beauty to the people. And so the king was enraged. He, he was mad and he said that, that the queen was to never again to come before the king. Wow, that, that, that's a great order for, for a queen. As all she was, she just wasn't willing to show herself uh, to this feast that the king was holding. I mean, it's like, it's like a dramatic soap opera. When, when I interned at uh, the Guthrie Grove Church, uh, we had uh, kind of like a parsonage right up next to the church. And as I would take a break for lunch, I would just go home. And uh, I don't like to sit in silence, so I often just flip on the TV. Well, we just had like an antenna, so we only had like two two or three TV stations, and my options in the in weekday afternoons was either like Judge Judy, and those shows kind of drive me crazy at times because they act like they're God, or the other options was soap operas, so I often found myself watching soap operas uh, while, while I ate lunch. So I, so I know a bit about what a soap, soap opera looks like, and this is one, this is one right here, as the king is holding this feast, the celebration, and on the seventh day, his queen isn't willing to show her beauty amongst the people. And the king said, all right, I've had it. You are never to, to come to me again. And you are no longer the queen. And so he tells his people that I need to find a new queen. And so they go on this quest to find this new queen. So King uh, Ahasuerus, or the king of Persia, he has all of his men go find a beautiful young virgin in the land of Persia. And so they go throughout all the land trying to find any young, beautiful virgin that they can. And they would bring them in. Any young, beautiful virgin they could find, they would bring them into the city. And these women, they would have 12 months. 12 months to prepare to finally meet the king. That, that's one intense makeup session. 12 months where they were to prepare themselves to meet uh, the king. And so they gathered all these young, beautiful uh, virgins. And Esther, the, the hero of our faith, was one of those young, beautiful virgins that was brought before the king. So after these women had 12 months to prepare themselves just to meet the king, 
I don't know what they were doing for 12 months, what they needed to do. I mean, I know girls are complicated, but 12 months? Okay, I guess you, you, I guess you do what you got to do. So they, they spent these 12 months preparing to meet uh, the king. And so finally, all the women, they had their turn to meet the king. And the, what, what would take place is these women, uh, they, they would spend the nights with the king. They would sleep with the king. Um, Really not stuff uh, that, that really should have been taking place. Uh, but each virgin took a turn sleeping with the king. And the king was to find who, whoever pleased him the most was going to be the new queen. And as many of you guys know, the lady who pleased the king the most was Esther. Esther was somehow more beautiful or more pleasing than all the other women. So Esther was made queen of the land of Persia. And as she was uh, very beautiful, and, and she pleased the king. And so Esther was the queen, and we had to remember Mordecai, uh, her cousin. And so after Esther was queen, Mordecai, her cousin, heard some men talking. And these men were saying that they were going to lay their hands on the king. Now we do a couple of laying on of hand services here. Uh, at North Hills, where we lay our hands on someone and pray over them. That's kind of the New Testament idea of laying on of hands. But the Old Testament has a whole different meaning when they say laying on of hands. When they say laying on of hands, they mean killing him. And so these men were seeking to kill the king, and Mordecai overheard them. And so Mordecai told Esther, who then told the king. So Mordecai saved the king's life. By, by telling Esther, who then told the king, that they were men who were seeking to kill him. And so Mordecai kind of viewed as, as the savior of the king. And so we continue the story. This is all the way uh, through the first two chapters. We continue the story in, in chapter 3. And we see that after some time, Haman, who was one of the king's officials, was put in charge of all the other officials. So Haman was put second and command in all the land of Persia. He's put in second in command. And Haman had a big head as well. He was all about me, me, me. A very egotistical man. And he had this, this idea that everybody who comes before him should bow down to him. Everybody who, who comes before Haman is to bow down to him. But Mordecai, or Mordecai, he, he was a Jew. And Jews were not willing to serve or worship or bow down to any other image or idol or god. And so Mordecai was not willing to bow down to Haman. And Haman was enraged. Haman was furious that this man, Mordecai, was not willing to bow down to him because, again, Haman had this big head and he wanted all the attention and the glory to himself. And so Haman found out that Mordecai was a Jew. And so he said that he was going to make a decree that on the 12th month and on the 13th day of the 12th month that he was going to make a decree that all the Jews were to die. I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy. Just from one man not bowing down to him, he said, all right, I've had it. Every single Jew is to die on the 13th day of the 12th month. And now they were only in the first month of the year. That's like January. And they had all the way to December the, the, like the 13th day of December, um, to, to think about this mass execution of the Jews. And Esther, being a Jew as well, she, she kept her identity, her nationality, a secret, as Mordecai uh, told her for whatever reason. So the king didn't know that Esther was a Jew 
herself. And so every good plot uh, to a story has one big overarching problem throughout the story or the movie or the book and that the protagonists have to solve. And the big overarching uh, problem that's presented in the book of Esther is this decree that's made that on the 13th day of the 12th month, every Jew is to be executed. Every single Jew is to be executed and killed on the 13th day of the last month of the year. And so here are Esther and Mordecai, kind of, or Esther kind of viewed as the protagonist of the story, and Mordecai uh, kind of her guide, so, someone who, who steered her in the right direction. So the problem that they had to solve was that in 11, month, in 11 months, there was a decree that said their people were to be executed. And so the Jews, they, they obviously went as, well, and also uh, Haman let this message spread throughout all the nations so everybody knew. So all these Jews who heard this news that they were going to die on the 12th month, they were weeping and mourning. And Mordecai himself was weeping and mourning for his people and, and praying and fasting to his people. And so he, he sent a messenger to Esther. And he, and he sends a messenger, uh, Hathah, to talk to Esther to see if she can do anything about this decree that's put in place to kill all the Jews. And that's where we're going to read a couple, uh, a short passage here. And after chapter 4, we pick up in verse 8, as, as Mordecai, he, he sends a messenger to Esther. Um, and so we continue in verse 8, chapter 4, it reads, Mordecai also gave him a copy, that is the messenger, of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach, the messenger, went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So here, uh, Esther and Mordecai, they're corresponding with one another through a messenger. And Mordecai is pleading to Esther, please do something. Please ask of the king's favor to, to do something about this decree, decree to save the Jewish people. And Esther says, well, everybody knows the rule that you can't go into the king's room unsummoned. And if you do, there's but one law. You're to be put to death. Unless... The king uh, sticks out his golden scepter to the person, which symbolizes that he accepts their invitation. But Esther says that I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. 30 days, she was seen, she hasn't seen the king. You know, she might, she might have thought that the king was maybe starting to move on. And so in verse 12, it continues. And they told, told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, 
Go gather all the juice we found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will go also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went, went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And so Mordecai uh, tells Esther in, in verse 14, I'll read that again. He says, for if you keep silence at this time, in other words, if you don't do anything to save the Jews, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Basically what Mordecai is telling Esther, that no matter what you do, no matter what you do in the position you're in, God is going to save his people one way or another, with or without you, Esther. God will save his people. But he says, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's he's saying, who knows? Maybe God put you in this place as queen of Persia just for this reason. Just for this reason to save all the Jews. Maybe God put you in this position, even though it doesn't explicitly state that. That's what Mordecai suggests. Even if God put you in this position, maybe that's why he did it. So that you could save the Jewish people. But again, he's going to save them with or without you, Esther. It's your choice if you want to be a part of God's plan in saving the Jewish people. And what a wonderful response Esther has uh, in verse 16 as, as she says, Then I'll go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Great faith and obedience and a love and care for her people where she says, I'm going to go to the king even though I'm not summoned. And if you go to the king not being summoned, you're to be put to death. But she says, if I perish, I perish. What, what, what a wonderful reply by Esther. And so we continue the story in, in chapter 5. We want to read it. So I'll just retell the story. Again, I encourage you to, to read the story uh, later on this week as, as I can't possibly mention every single detail. But Esther, in uh, chapter 5, uh, she enters the presence of the king without permission. And as she enters the, the king's presence... Thank goodness the king extends his golden scepter unto Esther, which means that he accepts her presence and her life is spared. And so the king asked Esther, what do you want? What do you want from me, Esther? And he said that he was willing to give up to half his kingdom for her. That's quite a bold statement. They're saying, Esther, tell me what you want. I'm willing to give up to half my kingdom for you. And so Esther tells her, I just want one thing. I just want you and your official Haman to come to a banquet or a feast that I'm preparing for you. And so they do just that. So Esther prepares a banquet or a feast uh, for Haman and the king. And they, they go to this banquet. They go to this feast that Esther has uh, pre prepared for them. And the king asks Esther again, what do you want from me, Esther? I'll give up to you half of my kingdom. And she says, I don't know why she just... Doesn't just say it there, but she says, come to another banquet. Come to a second banquet of mine, and I will tell you what I want from you. And I want just you and Haman there to see it. 
And so that they leave this first banquet, this first feast that Esther held for the king and Haman. And Haman left that feast with a big head. He, he was feeling good. He was feeling joyful about life. He said, I was requested in a meeting with just the king and the queen herself. Look at me. Look, look, look at this hot shot. Look at me, Mr. Haman, the highest official in all of the land who was requested to have a meeting with the king and the queen themselves and nobody else. And as he was celebrating and full of joy and just a big, huge head, he, he was walking across, going back to his home, and he stumbles across Mordecai, or Mordecai, and he is filled with rage and anger and, and, and a moment's notice. And he says, all this is for naught. All this glory that I'm receiving in the land of Persia is for naught if I see the man Mordecai living. For I want him dead. This glory means nothing to me if Mordecai is still living. And so uh, Haman told his men, build a gallows 50 feet high, a place to hang Mordecai in just a couple of days, or just the next day, or that he's going to tell the king that I'm going to hang Mordecai for he will not bow down to me. And so the night takes place, uh, the same day of the banquet, the same day that Haman sees Mordecai and is filled with rage. That same day, uh, the king is having trouble sleeping, so he has some of his servants read him a book, a book of memories, uh, the Chronicles. And in this book of memories, it was recorded the time that Mordecai saved the king's life. And the king goes, oh my goodness. We didn't even do anything for Mordecai when he saved my life. We have to honor this man. And so as Haman was, was entering the king's court, he was on his way to tell the king that I'm going to build this gallows and I'm going to execute Mordecai. The king tells Haman, this is humorous to me, as Haman's on his way to execute Mordecai, the king tells Haman, oh my goodness, Haman, we have bad news. We, we need to take care of business. This, some man saved my life some time ago, and we didn't do anything to honor him. What should we do? And Haman says, well, we should uh, give him some glory. We, we should put on him some of the finest robes, and he should ride on a horse, and I'll guide him through the, the streets of the city and give him uh, the praise and, and the respect and honor that he deserves. And so the king goes, great. The man is Mordecai. <laughs> I can just imagine Haman's rage. He goes, oh my goodness, I came to kill this man, and now here the king is ordering me to lead him on a horse as I'm walking around the city, guiding the horse for this man to be praised and honored for this good deed. I can just imagine the rage that he had filled in his heart. But Haman knew better uh, than to disobey the king. So the following day, uh, Haman leads Mordecai through the streets. He puts the finest robes on Mordecai, and Mordecai is riding on this majestic horse, and he's getting the respect and honor from the people as he goes throughout the city. As Haman is leading the way, walking the horse on its way, uh, I just I am positive that Haman was furious, and he was ready for this man to be dead. And so after Haman uh, leads. Uh, Mordecai through the streets, uh, they have the second banquet where it's just Esther, the king, and Haman himself. And so after he leads uh, Mordecai through the streets, he rushes to this banquet, to the second <coughs> feast that Esther has provided. 
And in, in this feast, we see, we'll continue the story in chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to chapter 7 of Esther. And we're going to start in verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. This is the second feast. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your crest? What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. The king of Hazarus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? Now we have to remember, Esther, uh, she was a Jew, and she was talking about Haman, but Haman and the king himself didn't know that Esther was a Jew. She didn't know that she was referring to Haman. And so in verse 6, Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So here Esther reveals that she is a Jew. And that Haman, this evil Haman, has planned to kill my people. He has planned to kill my people. A foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. And so Haman then became terrified. He, he was full of this excitement and joy of being able to have this feast and banquet with the king and the queen themselves. But all of a sudden, he became terrified. As his plot was revealed that he was going to kill the people of Esther. He was going to kill the Jews. And so then the king arose in his wrath towards Haman. And Haman was hanged on the same gallows that he prepared to have Mordecai hanged on. <laughs> Quite a story of irony there. As Haman prepares his gallows to hang Mordecai. But actually he ends up being hanged on it for his decree to kill the Jewish people, the people of Mordecai and Esther themselves. And so after Haman is killed, the problem is still at hand, the overarching problem of the story. There's still this decree that says all the Jewish people are going to die on the 13th day of the 12th month. Problem's not solved. Even though the main villain, even though the main bad guy is dead, his plan was already put into practice. And so Queen Esther pleads to the king, please, king, can we, can we do anything about this degree? Can we please save the people? That was law back then that you could not revoke a law. They, they couldn't just easily say, all right, we're going to take away that decree. You couldn't do that. So instead... The king devised a decree that said that on the 13th day of the 12th month, when the people were to kill the Israelites, the Jews have a right to defend themselves, and the Jews have the right to kill all of their enemies, all their enemies that will pursue them and persecute them. They then have the right to kill their enemies. And so the 13th day of the 12th month uh, finally arrived, and the Jews, they were given the right to defend themselves and kill their enemies. 
And that's just what happened. The Jews had victory over their enemies, and God's people were spared. God saved his people. Esther and Mordecai, they saved the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews. And as the story is resolved, we see that Mordecai, he becomes second in command in Persia, similar to the stories of Joseph and Daniel as they rose and power became second in command. Mordecai actually took the place of Haman, his enemy, and, and the Jews rejoice, and, and Esther still being queen. And so the problem is resolved. They saved the Jewish people. The overarching problem with the book of Esther, the, the threats of the Jews being killed, that problem was taken care of through the protagonist, Esther. It was because of Esther that the people were saved. Yeah, God could use somebody else. But Esther was obedient. And she was obedient and she saved the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews. Esther used the position that he had to serve God. Esther had a position as she was the queen of the land. And she used that position that she had to serve God. And again, God was going to save the Jews with or without Esther. But she used that position that she had as the queen of the land to save the Jews. It's a lesson that we learned from Esther this morning. Is that we need to use the positions that we have been given to serve God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and God's coming kingdom. We need to use the positions that we have to serve God. Now again, throughout the whole book of Esther, God is not mentioned once. It's not mentioned once that God placed Esther in, in this position to be queen to save the people. But we can see throughout the story, we're invited to see God at work. And God put Esther in place. Esther had a position that, that was specially placed for her so that she could save the Jews. And now, I don't know about you guys, but me personally, I've not audibly heard the voice of God telling me that he has put me in this position to, to serve the people. I'm guessing pretty much most, if not all of us, ha haven't heard the audible voice to, to tell us that, we, that God put us here for a specific reason. But let me tell you, God has a position for you. God has given you the position that you are at right now. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're an employer, whether you're an employee or a co-worker, whether you serve on the worship team, whether you serve as a deacon, whether you serve as a trustee, whether you serve as a deaconess, whether, whether, whatever position you have, God has given that position to you. And you have to use that position to serve God and make a difference and to save God's people. Because one day Jesus Christ is returning to this earth and, and he is going to judge the world. And those who are found righteous, those who have accepted the, the free gift of grace, the free gift of forgiveness, they'll be saved. But those who do not accept that free gift, they'll be destroyed. And Esther was dealing with the people whose faith was about to be destroyed. They're about to be destroyed. But Esther saved them. 
through the position that God gave her. And we encounter people day in and day out. We encounter people with whatever position that you have, whether you're a boss of some people, whether you work for your boss, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you serve in this church or not. God has put you in a position to save his people. It's God's will that none should perish. Just like it was God's will in the book of Esther that his people not perish. We can be firm that it's God's will that none should perish. And God has placed you in a special and unique position. And you need to use that position to save God's people. To save the people that he created. To save the people whom he knit and formed in their mother's wombs. God has placed you in a position to save them. And as we learn from, from the story of Esther, as we learn from a great hero of our faith, Queen Esther, we need to use the position that God has given us to save God's people. And just as Mordecai told Esther, as he said, listen, Esther, God is going to save the Jews with or without you. Let me tell you, God's, God's saving gospel message, the, the message of the kingdom and the cross and the resurrection, that message will be spread with or without us. But I don't know about you, I want to be a part of that plan. I want to be a part of that team, of, of that group of people that spreads God's saving gospel message. Because God will save his people one way or another. God will have his gospel message spread throughout the entire nation. Whether people accept it or not, we don't know. But God's gospel message will be spread. And we want to be a part of that team, that mission, that goal. in Spreading God's saving gospel message that we can save the people of this world from the lake of fire. Let me tell you, you don't want to miss out. You don't want to not be a part of this team. You want to be a part of this team that spreads this gospel message for it is such great, great news. And this morning we remember a key part of that gospel message. The message of the cross. The message that, that someday, about 2,000 years ago, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, so that we can be sanctified. That's such an important part of this gospel-saving message. And, and this morning, as, as we remember communion, that's what we do, remember the sacrifice Jesus Christ, if we can have the ushers come forward. This gospel message that we have is, is truly saving. We can take a seat. And we need to use the positions that we have to, to spread this gospel message. And, and again, a key part to this gospel message is the message of the cross, in which Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And so Jesus, as, as him and his disciples were celebrating the Passover meal, he took the bread and he said, This bread resembles my body, which is broken for you. 
And so as we partake this bread, this bread represents the body that was broken for us as Christ's body was broken on the cross. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for uh, your, your gospel message. I thank you for the positions uh, that you've given us. Father, I just pray that we can use the positions that you've given us to share this gospel message. That we can use these positions that we have to share with our friends and our families and our co-workers that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Father, I thank you for this good and free gift. I thank you that it's free to us, but Father, we're assured that there was a steep price paid and that, and that price was your son. And I thank you for that. I thank you for his body that was broken for us. So in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.